Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew, which is a testimony of the life of Jesus. And I shared with you last week that Matthew's agenda, uh, or what was on his heart, what inspired him to write, was that he wanted to reach primarily a Jewish audience. And so that doesn't mean that it has no meaning to anybody else. It just means that some of what he says will make sense more when you realize whom he's targeting. It's why he often says... This is written that it might be fulfilled, you know, because they would know what was to be fulfilled. Now, in his writing, he spends the first three chapters really laying the groundwork for his agenda, which is to testify of Jesus. But to give them an on-ramp, he spends three chapters bringing them up to speed. And so chapter 1, which we looked at last week, really talks about what happened before Jesus' birth leading up to it. Chapter 2 deals with the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And then chapter 3 deals with the events that happened between the birth of Christ and the ministry of Christ, uh, which is about a 30-year span between those times. And he sums up what he has to say in that. Now, in the practical, logical sense... Matthew, the writer, the man, inspired by the Spirit of God, is trying to give to us an on-ramp of context, a historical context so that we understand how we got to Jesus and why does it make sense. But in a spiritual context, there's a deeper reason why Matthew does things the way that he does. He's providing for us in these chapters really a spiritual context for why Jesus matters. And that's really what it's all about. I mean, you know, if, if, if I came up with, say, a solution uh, to a problem that you don't have, then that might be a very genius solution on my part. But if you don't have the problem, then it's really meaningless to you. And part of what Matthew is doing in his text before getting up to the ministry of Jesus is seeking to show to us why Jesus matters, that Jesus was the solution to a really big problem with the human race. But unless we realize that we need that solution, Jesus can just be another historical figure. He can just be information. But if I realize that I have an issue and a problem that I can't fix, and that Jesus is the solution to that problem, now Jesus means something to me. And that's really what Matthew is doing. So that's why we look at these things, um, because he wants us to realize our need. Now, as we look at the text in chapter 2, it almost seems as though it's about the magi or the wise men that we become so familiar with around Christmas time. But really, it's not. They are the, the characters in it. But they're really unnamed, and, and they're, they're, they're somewhat in the background of the, the reasoning behind it. Really, the main character in chapter 2 is King Herod. He's whom we will meet right on. He will keep showing up. He's the one that really matters uh, in this um, text, in this chapter. And he was an Edomite who was appointed by Rome to be the king over Judea or over the Jews during this time. He was not a Jew. He was not legitimate in the eyes of the Jews. He was a Roman appointee, and thus the people didn't like Herod, or at least they weren't supposed to like Herod. So as we go through this uh, segment of Scripture, I want to give you five W's so that you kind of understand the ladder that we're climbing. They are the word, the witness, actually reverse the order, the witness, the word, the wonder, the way-making, and all of those are just quick little steps to get us to the fifth one, which is the one point that I want to make to you tonight in this message, which is the why. Why does this matter, and who really cares? And so let's jump into it and, and, and begin. In verses 1 and 2, we see, first of all, the witness that's there. So notice with me, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now Matthew really wastes no time telling us how they got to Bethlehem or why they were in Bethlehem. All of that information comes in the Gospel of Luke. He just tells us that that's where they are. 
And it tells us that it was in the days of Herod the king, because that's his intent, that's his agenda. And then he tells us, behold, here's the the theme. He says, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. Now, these are the wise men. We don't know exactly where they are from. They are most likely from the region that had been Babylon and that then had changed hands a number of times. But from that uh, Middle Eastern area uh, of kind of Iraq or whatever. And most likely these wise men are the descendants of or akin to the magicians the soothsayers, the astrologers that we saw in the book of Daniel. If you remember, or if you've ever read the book of Daniel, the Jewish people had been taken as slaves into Babylon. And God raised up Daniel, who was a prophet. And as you read the book of Daniel, you'll see over and over again that there were magicians, astrologers, and soothsayers And they were supposed to be the spiritual authority and the spiritual council in those days. And part of the tension that exists in Daniel's time, in the book of Daniel, is that Daniel kept triumphing over their wisdom because he had the spirit of God. And, you know, they had a form of something, but Daniel's was stronger. And so you keep seeing kind of this tension between Daniel and the astrologers and the magicians and the soothsayers of that day. Now, most likely, these wise men had some link back to those people. We don't know exactly. We do know that there probably was more than three. You know the Christmas story, the three wise men? It's assumed because there was three gifts that were brought, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. But there probably was a group of these men that were there. Now, it's an accurate assumption to figure that there probably were not copies of the Old Testament scriptures circulating around the Middle East at this time. So these men were probably not well-versed in scripture, but they were obviously acquainted with some traditions and with some form of scripture just based on the fact that they're there. And we know that Daniel had been in that region. And and, and I just kind of play this out in my mind kind of like this. Because these guys, these wise men, these astrologers, they were stargazers. They were astrologists. They were ones that tried to discern actions and make decisions based upon the positioning of stars and of seasons. That's what they did. And I imagine that Daniel, at some point during his life, ran into these guys and said, What are you doing? And they said, well, you see, it's like this, and not to die, and going on, and this, and this star in its constellation, and this season, and the winter, and the solstice, and the sun is here, and you see the position of Jupiter, and, you know, they, they, they're going through this whole thing, and Daniel goes, you guys got this thing way complicated. There's one star, one star, that you should be looking for. One. Not constellations and, and hope, one. And they said, what are you talking about? And he said, let me show you. And Daniel turned him to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. And there probably wasn't a 24 or a 17, but there was a book of Numbers. And Daniel said, there's one star that you should be looking for, and here's what it is. This was spoken by a prophet. It says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That is an authority, a crown. And shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession, Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion or rulership, and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. There was a prophecy given way long ago that there would be a star that would prefigure the birth or the coming of the just one or the ruler or the Messiah. And somehow that message stuck with these men that were the stargazers. They knew that there would be a star. And somehow 500 plus years after Daniel is gone, the descendants of these men held to that tradition. And when they saw something that they knew was unfamiliar in the sky, they connected it with the scripture and had enough faith to act upon what it was that they were here or had heard or what had been passed down. 
I find it absolutely remarkable that God used tradition and a star to bring Babylonian men to Christ. Isn't that outstanding to just think about? God will use so many different things to bring a person to Jesus. Do you know the Lord used stars to bring my wife to Jesus? She was into astrology before she came to Christ. She would wake up in the morning and rush first thing to the horoscopes, and she would look as a high school student at the things that were in store for her day or for her immediate future. But it was in seeking after something greater in that that she felt the emptiness of it and realized that there's got to be more. And the emptiness became so great that it caused her to search, and in searching, she was found by Jesus. But it started there. For me, in a roundabout way, it was a star or stars also that led me to Christ. I was so empty in the later years of my high school and the first year of my college. I was so lost that sometimes, as an introvert then and still now, I would climb up on the college roof, uh, the library roof at the college I was going to at SUNY Purchase. It was the highest point on the campus. And I would just go up there by myself often, and I would just look up at the stars. And I would just sit there, and I didn't have any faith in God. I wanted something, but I didn't want the God of the Bible. My heart was all skewed, and my life was skewed. But I would just go up there and look, and I would see these things, and it was just the most peaceful place on the entire campus. And then one night while I was up there, it started to rain. And as it started to rain and I wanted to descend, the metal roof became a water slide. And as I began to descend, I picked up speed, hit the flat, shot right off the gravel roof and fell eight feet down and then down into a stairwell and landed right here on my face. Spent the next week in and out of a coma, saw double vision for a while, probably should have died, but God spared my life. And it was three months after that that Jesus found me. The emptiness became so great, but God used the stars that I saw when my head hit the concrete pavement. (laughs) To show me that I wasn't invincible and also that he was gracious because he would have been very just to just allow me to die that day, but he didn't. God will use so many things to bring a person to Jesus. What I find remarkable is that it was probably the testimony of one man who lived 500 years ago that impacted the lives of a whole group of society to come and search for Jesus when they just saw something in the sky that they thought didn't belong. Amazing. Well, the star didn't bring them the whole way. The star brought them most of the way. And usually the things God uses don't bring us all the way. They bring us most of the way. And so the witness became the word. Watch what happens in verse 3. It says that when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I find it amazing that Jesus was causing problems before he uttered his first word. He's already upsetting people and he hasn't even spoken yet. And it says that when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. In other words, this Edomite king who doesn't know God or the scriptures calls the scribes and says, please tell me, what does the prophecy say concerning where the Messiah, the king, will be born? And so they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And here's the scripture, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says that you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So the scribes put their heads together. They come back to Herod, and they say the prophecy is clear that he will then be born in Bethlehem. And so the word was then relayed to the wise men who were seeking after Jesus and then also to Herod who has an agenda of his own and also garnering the attention of the scribes and the Pharisees that were there. And they take the sign to the word to find out then where to look for Jesus. You know, there are some universal truths. Some of the universal truths are that everyone has a need for a savior. There's not a single person that if you get underneath the facade that they show in public or to people, everyone knows that they have a need. Another universal truth is that everyone wants to be a savior. There's something skewed about the human nature is that we just want to make an impact. There's something in us that we want to be saved. And then the third universal truth is that there's only one. And and you and I aren't it right? And so we all need it. We all want to be it. 
but there's only one and we're not it. And God knew that all those things were true. And so what God did to protect the identity of the true Messiah is that he filled the Old Testament scriptures with very specific prophecies concerning this one Messiah that he was going to send so that it would be unmistakable that he was actually the one. Because some people can fulfill some prophecies, but only one person can fulfill all the prophecies because they are successive and compounding. And Jesus was that one. And that's why Matthew is pointing out that it might be fulfilled, that he had to be born in Bethlehem because the word will be fulfilled according as God had said it. And so the word, and this is why it's important, confirmed the witness that Daniel had given so many years previously. See, there was a word, then there was a sign, and then there was the word. You understand? It it wasn't just the messenger and then the sign, but now it's brought to the truth, and the truth reveals this is where you go now to look for Jesus. This is where it will be. Do you understand that the scripture is essential in a person coming to know God? Jesus and the Bible are inseparable. John chapter 1, verse 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So Jesus is the Word. The two are inseparable. If you want to know Jesus, then know the Word. So you can't have Jesus without the Word. And so people that say, well, I know Jesus, but I got nothing for the Bible, that's a different Jesus. Because ultimately, it's Jesus and the seed of his Word that brings him into a life. And so a witness that someone gives or a wonder that somebody sees, a sign, that'll bring you most of the way, but ultimately it's got to come down to the word. What does God say about who he is and how it is that he's known or how it is that we're saved? So the witness leads to the sign, which then leads to the word. You have an evangelist, that's Daniel, a catalyst, that's the sign, and then you have an apologist. That's the person who expounds the word, the witness, the sign, and the word. Daniel says, let me tell you guys about the star. They then see it. Then the scholars say, go to Bethlehem. That's where you're going to find the answer to what you're looking for. Now, watch what happens. And here's number three. This is the wonder. It says in verse seven, it says, Then Herod, when he had prevalently called the wise men, he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Now, he doesn't really want to worship him also. You guys know that, right? Fellow fellow naive people, you know, am I catching you? You know, that's me. I would have been like, okay. (laughs) And when they had heard the king, they departed, watch this, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, don't miss this, is that the star disappeared for a time. That's when they heard the word, and then as they obeyed the word, the star reappeared and they rejoiced. They said, ah, there it is. That's the sign. That's what's pointing us there. Amazing. And so when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, And then being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Here's the wonder of what's going on in this whole thing. And there's uh, four things that blow my mind when I I consider what's going on. Number one, and probably the biggest, is that they they found what it is that they were looking for. These guys probably traveled 500 miles, give or take. And when they sought, They found, just like God says, that they that seek me will find me when they seek for me with all their heart. They found what it is that they came for. The second thing that's a wonder is that these Babylonian astrologers were more in tune with what God was doing in their day than the very people to whom God spelled it out. They knew And no one else that had the whole Bible had a clue what was going on. That is a wonder to me. Now, they should have known the Jews that were there. And they had two big clues. 
Number one clue was Daniel. Because Daniel prophesied to the very day following historical events when Jesus would come. So if they had just studied Daniel, they would have known that they were in the season when the Messiah was going to appear because it's very specific. The second reason they should have known was the fact that Herod was the king of Israel. Because there was a prophecy, it's in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. It was given by Jacob to his sons, and he spoke concerning Judah, and he says this. He says that the scepter, or the seat of authority, the crown, the kingdom, shall not depart from Judah, the lineage, the tribe of Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until... So it's going to have an end until Shiloh come. Shiloh is another name for the Messiah or the Savior. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, this is the first time in Jewish history since King David and since the captivity that there was not a ruler from Judah. Herod is an Edomite. He's not a Judean. And so they should have known if they were reading, if they were studying, if they, hey, they knew Micah 5 too. They knew that he was born in Bethlehem. They should have known. Hey, we have a king who's not from Judah. The season is now. Messiah is coming. He, he might even be here. But they were clueless. And it blows my mind that these wise men with one little obscure prophecy about a star were more in tune than the people to whom Jesus was actually coming. That's amazing. Third thing that blows my mind about this, the wonder, is not only, not only were they aware that he was coming, but they were finally in tune with his person, his calling, and his cross. Do you see the three gifts that they brought? It says that they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, that was not because that's all they had. Well, we're poor wise men from the east, and we just bring in what we got. No, Every jot, every tittle is significant. It all means something. Gold speaks of his person, that he would be kingly. Frankincense speaks of his anointing or his ministry. And then myrrh, it was a spice of embalmment. It spoke of his death and of his cross. And it shows that these men not only were in tune with the fact that he would come, but they were somehow spiritually in tune with who he was. That he was a great king that he would be anointed of God to serve God's purposes, but that he would ultimately lay down his life and give his life. That's amazing. Now, what's the takeaway from all of that for you and I? Here's what it is, is that you don't have to be a scholar, a scribe. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to be smart to be in tune with who God is and what God is doing. You can be a wise man from somewhere 500 miles away who has one little thing, but your heart is inclined to want to know who God is. And God is able to give you more of himself than someone who can study or learn or grow or pay or anything else. The Bible says very clearly, Psalm chapter 81, verse 10. It says, I am the Lord your God, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Can you all do that? Okay, you don't have to pay for that. You could do that for free. God is simply saying, open up yourself. Let me get inside and I will fill it. You open yourself to me and I'll fill it with what's inside. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3. God says this. He says, call unto me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things which you know not. He doesn't say, go go get a Bible college degree. He doesn't say, sign up for seminary or get yourself a tape series or start reading books. He says, you talk to me. You come directly to the source and you say, I want to know you. And God says, I'm going to show you things that you never knew before. I'm going to blow your mind. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and watch this, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. These men who had so little by way of education, we're not even told their names. But they took what they did know, and they said, God, we want to know. And God said, I'm going to show you and lead you. And that gives me great encouragement, because I'm just some Gentile kid from the East Coast, but I can know God, and so can you. It's an amazing, it's a wonder. The fourth wonder in this is that I imagine that for Mary and Joseph, having these guys knock on the door at this time, was probably some much-needed encouragement, wouldn't you think? 
I mean, do you remember being a new parent? Do you remember being a new parent with no job? Do you remember being a new parent not at home? Do you remember being a new parent? Remember what that was like? And all of a sudden, you, you're lost in the whirlwind. Yeah, I gave my life to God, but I don't know where he is. He left me to this baby a long time ago, and I don't know where God is right now. But now all of a sudden, these guys show up, and they're like, yeah, uh, your son, the Messiah, we brought an <laughs> amazing. For them, a shot in the arm. Unbelievable. Can you imagine someone showing up at your door when you're the least encouraged? You're just, you're, 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 you want to quit. You're done. Someone shows up at the door and says, oh, yeah, by the way, God sent me here to tell you that he's still with you. You're called. Everything that he told you is coming to pass just like he said. Don't worry about the chaos. He's got it in control. That's what this is like for them. It's an amazing thing. The fourth W is the way making. Watch in verse 13. It says that when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and he departed into Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Have you guys ever noticed that God is not too concerned with human convenience? I have noticed that. It is just a a universal fact. If you came to Christ thinking that your life was going to get more convenient, I've got a message for you tonight. Duck. And, and get your balance, because the rug is going to be pulled out from you more times than you can even imagine. Imagine what it's like for these guys. New marriage, new baby, no job, and now God says, leave the country. Go someplace where you don't speak the language, where you're not going to be embraced culturally, a place that has historically been at enmity with me and my people. Just go there. I, I need you to go there, because if you stay here, it's going to be worse for you than if you went. But you know what I love about it? Is that God pre-funded the journey. I mean, really, they just got, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't like a little piece of gold and a little bit of frankincense and some myrrh. I think these guys brought something, and all of a sudden, for Mary and Joseph, it was like, they're, they're sitting there praying, saying, God, please, we just need some, some bread so that Mary has enough milk to feed this baby, and, and we got nothing. We have no job. We're, we, don't, we don't know what. And all of a sudden, knock at the door, and it's like, hey, we got some gold here. We got some frankincense. We got some myrrh. You know, this is some valuable stuff. Before God sends them somewhere, he provides for them what they're going to need in order to go on their journey and survive while they're there. And I just love that about God. I've been walking with him for 20 years. And, and, and many of you, that long or longer. And, and one of the things that he has blown my mind with over and over again over the years is how he foresees the things that are coming and he will pre-provide for a need that I'll have. Sometimes he does it after or during But he's amazing to just set us up. It's very unstable feeling when God makes a change in our lives. But he always provides for it. He's always one step ahead of our need. Now, for me, he's done it with money. He's done it with time. He's done it with rest and refreshing when I just need it. He's done it with knowledge or scripture. There are times that I have read a chapter of the Bible... And, and then the next day or the same day, I need the information that was in it for some critical counseling session or answer to something. And it's like, God, you knew that I was going to have to, to have that. And you gave it to me ahead of time. It's amazing. He does it when I teach so often. Like there'll be something that I'll read or see or hear. And then I'll go to study and I'll be like, oh, Lord, thanks. I just heard this perfect for the message that's coming up this week. He's so good about that. And, and he does it. Now, he often does it in small things so that, watch this, we'll trust him in the big things. Okay, because it's a big thing when God says move to Egypt, <laughs> right? Or God tells us to do something that's stepping way outside of our comfort zone. And part of the way that we see God in the small things, what it does is it produces faith and confidence that he's going to be with us when we step out in the bigger things that that he calls us to. Now, I want you to watch what happens next because it's critical to the story and critical to this whole idea of trusting God. Watch this. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked by the wise men, was exceeding wroth, angry. He felt mocked. He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. 
And he sent forth and he slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, another fulfilled prophecy, that in Ramah, it's another name for Bethlehem, that area, was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Now, Matthew is the only one that records this genocide. It's not in Mark, Luke, or John. Only Matthew records Herod's slaughter of these babies. And you say, well, why is this here? Why did this happen? What does this mean? I want to draw your attention back to something that we read back in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter, of this account and testimony. Look at what it says there. It says that the wise men came from the east saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Watch. For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. And here's the part. Ready? And it says, And all Jerusalem with him. Now, this provides a little bit of context for why Jesus matters in this whole thing. Because I can understand why Herod is troubled. I mean, if you're a king, you're very comfortable in your position, and you like your position. And when someone says, hey, there's another king that's being born, or there's a king that is more powerful than you that is born, I could see where he would become uncomfortable. But what I can't understand is why all Jerusalem is troubled. That's the part that puzzles me, except when I consider that sometimes there is comfort in the status quo, even if the status quo is bad. I don't know if you can relate to that at all. Herod's comfortable, and the people are comfortable. There's stability, having Herod there as the king, even though it's contrary to God, and God sees that this is going to be a disaster for you in just a couple of weeks or just a couple of months. Listen, Just because things are comfortable in our lives doesn't necessarily mean that things are right in our lives or that the things in our life are good for us. Now, the people know that it's not right for Rome to be ruling over them, that that's not God's will, that wasn't his intention, that this isn't the way things are going to go. But life is working. Herod built us a temple. The economy is really good. We have jobs, we have homes, we have peace. We're not being bombarded and attacked and everything is just working. And even though it's not perfect, even though it's not ideal, maybe not even scriptural, it's working. We're at peace, we're at rest, we're comfortable and therefore we like it. We do the same thing, don't we? I know it's not right for me to be living on caffeine and carbs and sugar, But life is working. It's working for me right now. I know it's not right for me to be consistently spending more than I'm making. But it's really fun. And somehow it all comes out in the wash, at least for now. I know it's not right for my family priorities to be out of of whack. But I'm killing it at work. And I'm getting ahead real well. And I know I'm setting us up for the future. And yeah, maybe I'm missing a few valuable years with my kids. I'm not investing in my marriage. But I, you know, it's working for now. I know it's not right that I'm only putting in half in my life, but I'm taking out whole. I know that's not right, but I'm getting away with it. And I can slide under the radar and it's working for now. I know it's not right that there's a big and increasing difference between the inner me that I only know and that God sees and the outer me that everyone else sees and thinks that I am. And I, and I see that distance, that gap increasing. And I know, I know that's not right, but it's working for now. And, and everybody thinks at least that I'm doing okay. And as long as I can maintain the appearance that I'm doing okay, then it's, oh, I'm, doing, oh, I'm just going to let this go. It's not ideal, but it's good. I know it's not right the way that my husband is talking to me, the way he's talking to my kids. And I know that sometimes maybe he's, maybe he's crossing the line a little bit, a little, 
but it's working right now. And, and it would be very uncomfortable for me to confront or for me to stand up or for me to say something or do something. And so I know it's not right, but I'm just going to go with it for now because I don't know what else to do. And it's more comfortable for me to stay in this situation than to stand up to the situation. I know it's not right that I, that I have, by increments, by degrees, less and less say as a parent or choice as a parent into the way that I, I raise my kid. And I know that it's like a frog in the kettle where it's just little things, little things, little things, little things, a lot of little things. And, and I know it's not right, but it's working. It's comfortable. I'm, we're both able to work, and it, it just this is the way it's working right now. I know it's not ideal, but it's working. I, I know it's not right that I can't get through the day without anti-anxiety medication or, or without maybe, you know, helping a little bit. You know, it's functional. It's functional. Alcoholism, drinking, self-medication. It's, it's, it's just for now. I know it's not ideal. I know it's not, I know it's not good, but, but it's working. It's working for me. It's working for me. But then what happens is that God sends some magi. God sends maybe a friend. He sends a pastor. He sends a counselor. He sends a message you hear on the radio, Bible verse. Some, he sends a messenger and says, hey, what you're doing right now is not going to end well. And what happens to us? We're troubled. We're troubled. God is sending a subtle cue that something is going to give and that if you keep going in this thing that is comfortable but not right, eventually it's going to come and bite you. And it's going to be much worse than you think it's going to be. But we don't like change. That's not true. Humans, actually, we really do like change we just need a good reason for it. We change things all the time, right? We change our hair, we change our clothes, we change our house, our job. We just want a good reason for it. Without a good reason, we resist it. And so God sends someone, he sends a loving person to say, hey, what you're doing is not going to work out for you in the long run. You don't have to live this way. And if you would turn your life over to God or turn this area of your life over to God or begin to do things God's way in this, then it will fare well for you even though there may be some pain in the middle of the transition in the whole thing. We become agitated often with the person God is trying to use to help solve a problem. And our attitude often sometimes is, I wish God and his people would just leave me alone. I wish God would just, this is the way it is for now, and I can't cope with anything else. Here's the reality. The reality is that God sees what's coming, and he knows that if the status quo continues, then the king who is making things comfortable in some ways is about to kill everything that really matters to me. That's about to happen to God's people. It's comfortable. We're working. We have homes. He's going to kill all our kids in a couple of months. And all of a sudden, everything that I was holding on to and trying to maintain through a dysfunctional comfort that was working, all of a sudden now, it has taken from me the things that really matter, even though I can still hold on to maybe the things that ultimately don't. Because when I lose what's really valuable then what do I really gain even if I keep the thing that I'm trying to... See, Herod brought stability, but it was dysfunctional. And nobody knew how actually fragile their dysfunctional stability was. And I don't know if you've ever had that happen in your life where there was something that was dysfunctional, but it was stable for now. But when it gave way, you didn't realize how fragile that stability actually was. And I believe that there are some of us that are here tonight that God is calling us out of a dysfunctional comfort because he sees that what is coming, if we continue in it, is going to be a disaster. For some, there's a dysfunctional laziness. It's working. I know I'm not working that hard. I know I don't want to do it the hard way. I know I'd rather go the easy way, the downhill way, the wind at my back way. God sees that 10 years from now, if you do that, you're going to have a lot of regret because you're going to look back and say, I should be way beyond where I am, where God would have led me. Some of you, there's dysfunctional relationships. Relationships, people that are connected to you in your life that you know they're turning you away from the things of God 
And little by little, you're becoming a person that you don't want to be because of the influence of some people in your life. For some, there's some dysfunctional lifestyles. Some things that you're allowing into your life that are eroding away your personhood and stripping away the God-given qualities that make you unique to bring glory to His name. For some of you, there's dysfunctional spending patterns that are slowly, incrementally making you a slave, but you can't feel it right now and you don't even know it. And for some... There's a dysfunctional faith because you're trusting yourself in areas of your life and neglecting God and you don't know that you're about to lose everything in the middle of it. And listen, that's why Jesus matters. Okay, that's why they needed a king to be born in Bethlehem. Because they didn't realize that what they were living in was ultimately one day just waiting for its chance to take them out completely. But God's will and desire for them, is that they would be saved. And this is where faith comes in. Because if God sends someone into your life or circumstantially brings it to your attention that there's something not right, even in a small area, or he tells you through his word, or he gives you a sign, or he confirms something, and you say, ah. But faith says, okay, God, are you challenging me here? God, do you see something coming that I can't see right now? God's trying to get your attention. Listen, not to torture you, but to help you. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, it says that for such a high priest, that's Jesus, became us. That means made himself available to us. Who is, listen, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That means not only in his position can he see your life clearly and perfectly, but that his will is for you and not against you, and that he's harmless in his desire and what he wants for your life. That's who he is. Now, you say, well, what does that mean in the, in the context of trusting him with dysfunctional comforts, Herod's? Things that I have in my life that aren't ideal, but they work. What does it mean to trust him? I want you to see how God handles Herod's when we remove them from our lives. Because that's what God told Joseph to do, right? He says, you need to get away from Herod because there's going to be a train wreck in just a minute. So go to Egypt. And it was hard to go to Egypt. It was very uncomfortable to go to Egypt. But Joseph went to Egypt. And I want you to see what God did to Herod once Joseph and Jesus were safely in Egypt. Look at verse 19. It says, but when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. You see what God did to Herod? He killed him in three words. When Herod was dead. Sorry, it's four words. <laughs> when Herod was dead, God killed Herod. Do you know what God does to Herod's? He kills Herod's. If you read the New Testament, you see that God has a pattern of this. Because this is the first time, but not the last time, that God's going to kill a Herod. If you read Acts chapter 11, there was another Herod who thought he was more powerful than God. He killed James, the apostle, and then he brought Peter out and was going to kill him. And he gave a speech and thought he was something special. And God killed him on the spot and his body was eaten with worms. You know why? Because the church was trusting God, praying for deliverance. And God answered their prayer. You know what God does with Herods when we distance ourselves from them in faith? He kills them. He kills the Herods in our life. You know what the Herods are in our lives? They're the habits. You write this down. It's the letter H. I'm going to spell Herod for you. He kills the Herods. He kills the habits. The things in our life that are comfort to us, but we know they're not right. They're distracting us from God. He kills the excuses. Well, that scripture doesn't apply. That doesn't really mean that what it means. I mean, that might have applied way back when, but it doesn't apply anymore to me, or I'm different, or you know, the, you know what I'm talking about, the excuses. If you like better, if you say, I don't really make excuses, you can write excesses, okay? Because we all have some excesses, don't we? Some things that maybe uh, might be okay, but we take it a little bit too far. We're excessive in some of those things. Sometimes the relationships, the people that are influencing us in a negative way, how about the obsessions, the things that get a hold of us and we can't put them down, can't put it down, can't put it down. I want to control this. I want to control this. I want to control this. How can I fix it? How can I fix it? How can I control it? How can I, how can, you know, I don't, am I alone? No one else? Some of you? 
How about the distractions? We know what's really important. We know what we're supposed to be doing. We know what's going to help us. But it's so easy for us to be distracted when we're supposed to be preaching. We need to know what that text message says. It says, stay focused. (laughs) And how about the slavery? The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but the end thereof is destruction. And sometimes the things that we give ourselves to, we don't allow God, we don't trust Him to say, God, yes, this has become the status quo in my life, but I believe that you have something greater for me, but I don't know how. But Lord, I want to trust you with this and distance myself from it in whatever way that I can, even if it means going to Egypt for a season, which is extremely inconvenient to separate myself from this. But, but God, if, if you want to do something in my life and I'm being held back by things that I've allowed and that I'm doing, then Lord, I, I want to trust you with the Herod. I want to trust you with the dysfunctional comfort that I've been trusting in. Jesus is the only one that is able to manage every part of our lives. We can manage some part of our lives, or sometimes we can manage some parts of our lives. But Jesus is the only one that can manage all of our lives. And when we put our trust in him in every area of our life, he works all things together to bring us to the place that he created us to be, which is where we will enjoy our lives and enjoy him and bring him glory. But when we hang on and we say, no, this is comfortable even though it's not right, that one thing that we hold on to oftentimes can sabotage everything else and just take the whole thing out. It's convenient. He's killed your kids. Wake up. There's some here tonight, God is calling you, and you know it, to a deeper place with him. You're a Christian, you're saved, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, but you know, based upon the things that have been going on in your heart, and some of the things that you've been hearing in messages, or reading in the word, or hearing on the radio, or, 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 that God is calling you to a deeper place with him. But will you have faith to distance yourself from the Herod that's holding you back? I want to read this to you. It's from a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's written by a man named Brother Lawrence. He says, I cannot imagine how religious persons can live satisfied without the practice of the presence of God. For my part, I keep myself retired with him in the fund or center of my soul as much as I can. And while I am so with him, I fear nothing. But the least turning from him is insupportable. This exercise does not much fatigue the body. It is, however, proper to deprive it sometimes, often, of many little pleasures which are innocent and lawful. For God will not permit that a soul which desires to be devoted entirely to him should take other pleasures than with him. That is more than reasonable. I do not say that, therefore, we must put any violent constraint upon ourselves. No, we must serve God in holy freedom. We must do our business faithfully without trouble or disquiet, recalling our mind to God mildly and with tranquility as often as we find it wandering from him. It is, however, necessary to put our whole trust in God, laying aside all other cares and even some particular forms of devotion, though they be good in themselves, yet such as one often engages in unreasonably because these devotions are only means to attain to an end. So when by this exercise of the presence of God, we are with him who is our end, it is then useless to return to the means, but we may continue with him our commerce of love preserving in his holy presence. All that to say is that, listen, sometimes it costs something to gain something. And when what we're gaining is the presence of the Lord, then the price is never too high to say, Lord, take me deeper if it is there that you want to draw me to. And my prayer for you tonight, that God, who has been knocking and saying, there's more of me, and I'm waiting for you to give me more of you, is that in the gentleness of the knock of his Holy Spirit, you would just grant him access and say, Lord, I want to open my mouth wide tonight that you might fill it. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus personally, and you know that the gentle knock of the still small voice has been saying, hey, hey, How's that working out for you? The status quo. 
the life that you've carefully carved out for yourself. I'm holy, I'm harmless, I'm undefiled, I'm separate from sinners, and I'm for you and not against you. Will you let me into your life to slay the Herods and to begin to do in you what I created for you from the foundation of the world? And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, it's as simple as turning your heart heavenward and saying, Jesus, I open my heart to you. I believe and I receive that what you did on the cross, when you spilled out your blood for the forgiveness of my sins, that that was more than enough to make atonement for my soul. And I open my life to you that I might know you. Not observe your religion, but that I might know you. That's why Jesus matters. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word and we pray that you would take the things that we have heard and seen tonight and that you would help us to make sense of them as it pertains to our path. Lord, that you would open up our eyes to see the things in our lives that are harming us though we cling to them with sometimes such desperate grip. And we ask you, Lord, that we would have more of you. For a God who cannot be contained in the heaven of heavens, certainly, Lord, we don't have all of you that there is to have. And so would you, by your Spirit, continue wrestling out of us those areas of resistance and help us to trust you fully with every part of who we are. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your gentleness. Thank you for your kindness. And thank you for your cross. We ask, Lord, that you'd hear our prayer and the desires of our heart, even now in this moment. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.